let's bow our heads. Dearly Father, thank you once again for this privilege of being here this morning. Thank you for gathering us together as family on a beautiful morning like this, Father, that you've ordained from eternity past, Father. Thank you for this building, the spiritual gifts you've given through your spirit to build up this congregation, Father, in a way that is really unique for each one of us. What a blessing it is to be here this morning, Father. May we never become familiar with it, but understand it for what it is, an expression of your love towards your children. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that can't be here this morning. We pray for their health and their return. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world, Father, without hope, that they be evangelized. And we might have additional brothers and sisters in Christ forever and ever. We are most grateful and thankful for that profound reality that occurred on a cross 2,000 years ago, Father, to make even our rejoicing this morning to be without doubt, but with absolute substance, Father. Thank you for the reminders along the way. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, part 34, Proverbs 17, Wisdom. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, on Thursday, I shared that the Spirit had woken me up uh, that morning at 3 a.m. for little conversation, uh, which isn't uncommon. I'm not sure about the rest of you, but in my life, that's not uncommon uh, for him to wake me up in the middle of the night and just have a little conversation. But that particular conversation ended uh, with him directing me towards Psalm 32. And at the time, I had no idea. I don't have the entire Bible memorized, so I don't know. I didn't know at the time exactly what Psalm 32 was even going to bring. So after around, or at around 4.30, uh, when I got up to read it, um, and I had started to prepare for Thursday's message, um, I began to realize uh, why. Psalm 32 is one of the penitential psalms, is what we call them, because it deals with confession of sin. And there are seven or so of them in the Bible uh, seven or so psalms that are considered penitential, 51's uh, one of them as well. And we learn a lot from those types of psalms. Remember, psalms are part of the wisdom books, and so it's really packed with wisdom. We learn a lot from these wisdom books. And in this case, the Spirit had us focus on the value of confessing, or confessing what is true, let's put it that way. The value of confession, which is really saying the same thing as God, our Father in heaven, 
whether it's good or bad, that's not the point. We have to get to that place in our souls where it doesn't matter if what we're confessing is good or bad. That's not the issue at all. It's the value of confessing that matters. It's the value of being oriented to the holy, sovereign God of the universe. That's the value of confession. It's not about whether or not you're right or wrong. It's about orienting to him. Does that make sense? That's what it's about. Because he's not, he's not a taskmaster father. He's not looking for ways where you've tripped up so he can whip you back into shape or just whip you because he's cruel. That's not him at all. He's trying to draw us to himself. And the only way that happens is if we orient to him. If we share his divine perspective on things. And so that's the value of confession. It's to be and to think more like him. Good, bad, or ugly, it doesn't matter. So let's read this passage again for, to regain our footing. Go to Psalm 32, verse 1. Psalm 32, verse 1. So I'm hoping that over time, rightly so, the word confession doesn't have that, you know, that little pinch in the side that a lot of religious people have. And I know a lot of you were religious before you came to the actual truth. And so you always have that sort of twinge, like, oh, confession. It's like, oh, oh I've got I've to confess my sins. I've got to confess my sins. It's always this sort of like jab, this jabbing. It shouldn't be like that. Think about confession as just orienting to God. That's it. It's just to orient to his thinking. Say the same thing. That's confession. You have to unlearn what religion taught you. Okay? And you'll be set free by it. That's why he has me teaching this way. Because when you shake that off, you know, ah, because it's a false teaching, and false teaching always leads to bondage. If you shake off that thing that confession equals some dealing with sin, then you understand the value of it, the greater value. Is that a subset of confession? Yeah. But that's not the point of confession. The point of confession is that thinking like God. That's the point. Okay? And that's how he draws you into the sphere of him. Psalm 32, 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So you see a lot going on there, right? In whose spirit there is no deceit. Uh, this is so very true. God's forgiveness takes away all of what we've been calling as sort of a, 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 a a placeholder, if you would, in our studies, this, this key word, punishment. Um, God's forgiveness takes away all of the punishment we've been noting as of late. Um, and then David uses or gives an alternative to the precursor to being relieved of this punishment, which is confession that leads to forgiveness. Look at verse 3. He says, 
For when I kept silent, he says, all right, blessed is the person who confesses and repents, right? Because they're forgiven. God's not about that anymore because now that person has oriented to God and there's relief and freedom in that thing. And then he says, but look at verse 3. He says, for when I kept silent, in other words, when I refused to confess, when I wasn't blessed, like verses 1 and 2 describe, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. David had refused to confess, and he continues to describe the pains he suffered in this passage, the pains that we suffer when we refuse as a result. Look at verse 4. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Salah, or as a non-New England person would say, summer. You didn't hear that? I said summer. Nobody. Too early. <laughs> right? My strength was dried up as the heat of summer, Salah. So to his own benefit, David chose to confess and repent his sin to God which, as is the case for all of us, begins a windfall of blessings. That's the point. That's the point. God doesn't bless us this way until we agree with him. How could he bless you if you're disoriented to him? If all the blessings are with him, and you're over here, how could he possibly extend those blessings to you? The idea is, good, bad, or ugly, come to me. Just say the same thing. We'll work out the details. The sin was yesterday, so there's nothing to be changed about it. I just want to reconcile you to myself so we can have a, I don't know, adult conversation about this. So I can, so I can sanctify you, to use more theological terms, right? So I can have you to myself. I want you with me. I need you to say and think the same way as I do. That's the whole point. You want that harmony with God because that's where the windfall of blessings come from so I hope you see that because even if you're out of even if you've sinned in the past you can have ultimate harmony with him right now if you confess that sin if you say the same thing as him about that sin that's a beautiful thing and religion will never teach you that Religion will never teach you that because it loses its grip on you. Religion will always tell you you need to live over here in condemnation. Oh, sure, you can be, oh, sure, you can, you can, you know, end up with God in heaven. But for now, little miss or little Mr. Sinner, you're going to stay over here and, you know, uh, pay penance. And, 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 you know, pay for your sins. Um, hello? I think somebody already paid for your sins last time I checked. Look at verse 5. So he says, I acknowledged my sin to you. This is great. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. I'll come clean, in other words. And that's the beauty of this. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Salah. There you go. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave 
the iniquity of my sin. So David states clearly that to confess is to receive forgiveness. This isn't mechanical, by the way, so don't get all weird. I know some of you have a mechanical background as well. David states that to confess is to receive forgiveness. Just say the same thing. So as a side note, receiving forgiveness doesn't always mean relief from all punishment. Okay? Those are two different things. So don't make it uh, mechanical in that way either. Don't become religious about it, right? So receiving forgiveness doesn't always mean relief from all punishment. These are two different things. It's no different than if a child confesses something to their parents, and now there's, you know, reconciliation. There's restored friendly relations with the parent, right? There's no longer that animosity, that bucking, the friction in the home, right? Uh, it's no different than if a child confesses something to their parents and the parents forgive them. The punishment they received for the original offense, let's say, isn't automatically lifted. In fact, a good parent leaves that punishment in place for the purpose of training the child. You know, I mean, you know, in other words, if you get grounded for a couple of weeks because you lied or something like that, that, that punishment remains in place, even though forgiveness has already transpired for the sake of training. Up here on the board, so just make that distinction, the difference between confession versus punishment. Confession of sin reorients one's thinking with God's. In other words, it reconciles our thoughts. That's what I was describing at the beginning of this message. Our thoughts are reconciled. That's what confession of sin does. Punishment, though, is discipline meant to train us to not sin that way again. That's what the punishment's about. It's a training tool. Because if you never got punished, let's face it, what would you keep doing? The same old thing. You might say, no, no, I love Jesus so much, I would never do it again. Please, if you had no conscience to haunt you, you never got, you know, even sometimes physically, physically stuff can happen. You weren't haunted by your past, you know what I'm getting at, by your past sins, even like in a practical sense, blah, blah, blah. You would just keep on doing it. You're not that holy. Right? Is that fair? That's, yeah, you, you suffer pain to train you, hey, don't do that anymore. Don't stick your finger in the socket, it hurts. So just make sure that you understand the, the differences there. They're related, but they're different. So confession of sin reorients one's thinking with God's. It reconciles our thoughts. Punishment is discipline meant to train us to not sin that way again. So we need to uh, ensure that we aren't viewing confession like, you know, one of those, you know, those things on the, on the TV, that magic eraser? Nobody? Like, you know, there's crayon on the wall, and you just go, whoosh, and it's gone. It never works that good. It's like the... It's like that, what's that little thing, that squeegee thing, the guy's dead now? What do you call those things? Shamwow, yeah, shamwow. Remember those things? Look at this, I can soak up a 55-gallon drum into this one rag, right? It's like it's perfectly, you look at it, it's like, oh, is that really working? You get it, it's just like, anyways. The magic eraser, as far as I know, works. Like you can kind of like scrub something 
Just don't view confession like one of those magic erases that wipe away all repercussions of sin. You know what I'm saying? Just because you confess it doesn't mean that all punishment's magically gone. I mean, you might have made bad decisions that affect other people, even. And it just doesn't magically go away. You understand? That's the point. A perfect perfect example, and I don't mean to judge anyone, um, a perfect example is a person who, say, gets drunk, drives a car, and hurts someone. Well, all parties involved, they may forgive that person, and that's a beautiful thing. But the punishment of knowing someone was hurt because of your sin may linger for a while, for a long time even. And that's good. That's good. It's that punishment that becomes the deterrent for future sinning. That's the point. Okay? So it's one thing to confess and be forgiven. It's another thing for all the punishment to go away. It doesn't magically go away, necessarily. Okay? Now, when we accept this punishment as righteous, which it is, we call this remorse. And the Bible will use the word in the terminology around remorse even. You know, having a certain sorrow for something. doesn't mean you have to live in condemnation for it. It means you have a certain remorse over it. Yeah, that was wrong. I'm sorry for it. Um, we call that remorse. But that doesn't happen until we accept the punishment as righteous, as the right thing. If there's no remorse, especially with, you know, God, towards God, for sinning in the first place, there's something pathologically wrong with that person. There's no remorse whatsoever. There's something pathologically wrong with that person. And that person's conscience is likely seared, as we noted this past week. A person with a seared conscience really needs to consider the very likely reason for that. That is that they are unsaved. That's the likely reason for it. If you have no remorse whatsoever, chances are you're unsaved. A good conscience would never allow a person to hurt others without suffering remorse. Isn't that what a good conscience is there for? To discern between right and wrong? And if it discerns something is wrong, and you've hurt somebody, well, that good conscience is going to drive you towards confession and repentance and asking for forgiveness, even from the person, but starting with God. And if that's absent, if that doesn't exist in a human, I don't see how they can be saved because God implants that good conscience in us when we're saved. We start to begin to understand the basics of right and wrong. And so if a person has no remorse whatsoever, something's tweaked. Do you understand? Um, This is why I stated last time up here on the board. Self-induced misery To live in sin is a choice. To refuse to confess that sin is to remain in it under the judgment and punishment that it incurs. But it's a choice. That's what you have to realize. Um, We saw that with David. It's a choice. Um, And if, especially if you're a believer, 
that choice is going to lead to, lead to a certain kind of punishment. And the charge is led by your good conscience, that thing that discerns right and wrong, that thing that God the Holy Spirit can use to amplify and say you're wrong in this. You need to confess it. You need to stop living in it while your bones waste away, to use David's analogy. You need to stop choosing this life of sin because you're hurting yourself. It's what we would call self-induced misery. You're hurting yourself by choosing to remain in that sin. And that's not going to change because I love you and I'm a loving father and the loving father disciplines his own. So I'm not going to lift the burden of this punishment from you. Matter of fact, it might become worse over time. So that's self-induced misery. To live in sin is a choice. To refuse to confess that sin is to remain in it under the judgment and the punishment that it incurs. Eventually, a good conscience conquers a believer's stubbornness. It doesn't mean we can't go for a while, like we saw with David. Um, but eventually, this is one of the ways we know that we're even saved. It's a litmus test for salvation itself, is that our good conscience eventually conquers our stubbornness. <laughs> Eventually, we run out of runway with our stubbornness, you know, um, up here on the board. 1 John 5, 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So that's a guaranteed statement. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Eventually, you're going to conquer your own stubbornness because you're a child of God. And God has put that thing in place to activate overcoming your own ridiculousness through confession. Eventually, you will confess, right? Whether you even choose to change, strictly speaking, or just modify it a little bit and play that little game that we like to play with God, right? Well, I'll back off a little bit. God's like, I'll just do that sin less. You know that little game? Nobody plays that game? Right? Oh, I'll just do it less. Okay. We'll see how that works. God's rolling his eyes. Here's another translation for the sake of amplification. 1 John 5, 4, the New Living Translation. For every child of God defeats this evil world. And we achieve this victory through our faith. Every child of God defeats this evil world. And that's in the habitual. I don't have the original Greek, but it's probably active voice, present tense. Right? Something that is ongoing. We defeat the evil in this world. Because we're children of God. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Because we're children of God, we conquer. The, the, the lusts of, the, of our own disgusting fleshes, the, 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 the lust patterns, if you would, the, the systemic issues that infect us like diseases. We overcome it all. And this is a promise from God. You will overcome it. It might be a slow process. You might be a little stubborn mule for a while, like David was. But eventually you're going to change. 
because my discipline, my hand is a lot bigger than yours. Right? That's the point. And that's a beautiful thing because we want that from God. We want his corrective or the corrective aspects of his nature to press us into reorienting to him. All right, let's finish our passage. Verse 5. He said, I acknowledge my sin to you. So David confesses. Uh, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. You might have to say that. Do you understand? It's that simple. Make that decision. This is his decision point. He made a decision. He said, okay, I'm going con- to confess my transgressions to the Lord. That might be the very simple inward conversation you have with yourself. Maybe there's some sin you've been living in. You have to say, I'm going to confess it right now. Today's going to be the day of change. Today's the day. I mean, seems pretty simple. And it is. God's removed all the barriers. It's not like you've got to do anything other than confess. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Salah. And then he becomes our teacher. Look at verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. Him is the one praying. He's protected. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Salah. I, and from wisdom's perspective, will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. In other words, don't be a stubborn mule, right? Um, but I believe that this goes a little further than that. What he's saying goes a little bit further than just don't be a stubborn mule. David's using, um, you know, what we would call beastly. You know, mule, horses, beasts, beastly imagery for a reason. Because they're just beasts, right? Um, he's saying, don't be that person who has to be, quote, curbed with bit and bridle in order to remain loyal to wisdom. Does that make sense? In other words, if, it, <laughs> if you're left alone for a little while, you're going to wander off like a beast, like a dummy, unless you're, you know, tied to a post. Something in your mouth. Is that you? Like you left alone for a little while and you're like, you know, wisdom's right here, right next to you. And you go, right? Like a dumb beast. Like a, one that doesn't have any understanding. That's the whole point. You have to be that person. Do I got to tie you to a post to want to be near me? or to keep you near me? That's a good question. And that's that old, remember the push-pull model I used to always use as a teaching construct? You know, someone, you're either being pushed by the commands of God or you're being pulled by them. Right? Pushed, immature perspective. Pull, mature perspective. Um... But it's that same thing. It's, it brings out the push-pull model that we've pondered over the years, particularly on the notion of obedience. Um, our conclusion has always been it's better to want to do what's right 
than to be forced to do what's right. The end goal might be the same. You might do what's right. But it's much better to want to do it, to be pulled towards it, than to be forced to do it, to be pushed towards it. In other words, it's better for all parties involved if you are willing to obey God's commandments. Go to Philippians 1.9. It's better for all parties involved if you're willing to obey God's commandments. Philippians 1.9. That's what the Bible teaches us. Get to that point where you understand the commandments of God. You understand obedience as a blessing. I've taught that, not maybe six months ago. You understand that obedience becomes a blessing, not that adolescent thing, like, ah, right, ah, I got to obey. No, that's that push model. That's the adolescent who has to get pushed to do what's right versus a mature person who looks at obedience as a blessing because it means that God has guided you. The Holy One of the universe, whose way is perfect, has said, go this way. Go about things this way. Think this way. That's a beautiful thing because now you have leadership in your life. You have direction. You have purpose in your life. That's a blessing. That's what the commandments are all about. To keep you on the narrow road so you don't self-destruct. So you understand that's a blessing. An adolescent goes, oh, just another commandment. I got a life, you know. Right? I'm too preoccupied with my social networking to be bothered by yet another command. That's the push model. Philippians 1.9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, speaking of good conscience, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So you get blessed with you know, purity and blamelessness. God gets the glory. You see how it's better for all parties involved? Yeah. Again, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. When you love God, you, you are drawn to Him. His, His commandments become gifts and you say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for giving me discernment. That's what happens when your love grows, when your knowledge of him grows. You begin to appreciate him all the more, and he's glorified. And so by all intents and purposes, all parties um, are better off with a pull model. Okay. So there's much greater glory to God if a person obey, obeys him out of a desire to bring glory to him than it is to obey out of desire to simply, you know, avoid being disciplined. That's a major distinction between mature believers and immature ones. For example, a mature believer will fully understand our previous point up here on the board, self-induced misery. A mature believer goes, yep. Absolutely. Right? An immature believer might say, they might reject the very first statement. It's not my choice. Have you seen my parents? It's all their fault. 
I'm a complete jackass at the age of 40 because my parents were awful. You're 40. Four zero, as in four decades. Still blaming your parents, huh? Still blaming your parents for your bad choices. You don't understand. I'm this way because I was, I don't know, you, you choose whatever the drama was in your life. And I'm not discrediting awful things that happened, but you get the point. Right? There are some people that reject the very first statement. It's not my choice. Oh, yes, it is. It absolutely is your choice. Last time I checked, you're the one that's going to be standing before God at the end of all this. Not your parents. God's going to go, stop blaming your parents. What are we doing here? I gave you that whole time on earth so you could what? Blame somebody else? I don't know. So it's, in, it's interesting, but that's the, that's the nature of an immature believer. They perpetuate this lie to protect their own flesh. Anyways, a mature person says, yep, it's me. I'm the one choosing to sin. I've always been the one to choose to sin. I've always known what the difference between right and wrong. Right? Just because my father was a jackass doesn't mean that I have a right to sin. That's folly. That's foolishness. Anyways, that's the distinction. To live in sin is a choice. A mature believer, that's absolute fact in the soul of a mature believer. To refuse to confess that sin is to remain in it under the judgment and punishment that it incurs. As we've been studying this, you know, this punishment, for believers at least, it may be quantified minimally. I mean, in other words, well, okay, Pastor, what is that punishment? Like, what is it? Well, it may be quantified minimally as a loss of peace. It doesn't have to be, you know, you lose an arm or, you know, you're maimed or, you know, something physical. It, it, it's minimally quantified as a loss of peace, that punishment, for a believer especially. It's this loss of peace that causes a person to lament the way David was in Psalm 32. The prophet Jeremiah also suffered a loss of peace due to the righteous judgment of God on Israel. And likewise, as a result, he lamented so much that he filled up an entire book. <laughs> it's called Lamentations. So let's read an excerpt from that. Go to Lamentations 3.15. Lamentations 3, verse 15. We're going to see what happens to a person who's under this punishment. Another person, right? And we have to see where the direction of where this punishment is coming from. This is something we're going to see immediately out of the gate. Lamentations 3.15. I know that one's kind of hard to find, isn't it? It's a little, it's, it's small. But it's there, I promise. You got it? Okay. Lamentations 3.15. He has filled me with bitterness. Who's he? God. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. Do you see it? 
bereft. It's gone, void. I got no peace. Minimally, that's the quantifiable thing of being under punishment as a believer. I have forgotten what happiness is. All right, this person's in rough shape, right? This is true lament. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. Whew. This is precisely what happens to a person whose sin is greatly upon them. In this case, there's a corporate judgment in view. Okay? That is that Israel as a people was being disciplined by God. And Jeremiah was a member of that people. But nonetheless, the principle is the same. Judgment, loss of peace. That's the point. Punishment, loss of peace. So if you remain living in sin, you will be punished. That's the point. And as we've been noting over the past few messages, a portion of that punishment is a lack of peace. It may be the, the profound one that you're able to relate to. Why am I lacking peace? There are people hearing my in this building right now that have a lack of peace in their life because they choose, active voice, present tense, they choose to live in sin. And that part of their life, however it stretches out from there, however it emanates out, they don't have peace. They're in constant turmoil because they choose to live in this specific sin. And so the first thing out of the gate is, is peace. I mean, you're disoriented with God. Remember the start of, of the message, right? The idea is to confess and be oriented to him because he is peace, love, happiness, the source of all things good. To disorient is to move away from him. That's tantamount to saying you're moving away from peace because he is peace. So to move away from him is to leave peace behind. That's the first quantifiable thing, and it's visceral, right? It, it's like, oh, whoa, like I don't have any peace. I can't sleep at night. I, I'm riddled with guilt. Uh, I've got all kinds of stuff going on in my soul that's, that's weighing me really heavy right now. That's called lack of peace. I'm anxious. I'm worried. I'm afraid I'm not covering my tracks, you know, whatever the problem is. You don't have peace because you're living in sin. Verse 18, so I say, my endurance has perished. So is my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul, in other words, don't hope the Lord's going to save you when you're living in sin. Does that make sense? Okay. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Okay, now he's turning back. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. In other words, he's always over there. I may have gone this way for a little while, but guess what? When I turn around, repent, that's what repent means. When I turn around, I look, and there's God. He's still there because he's merciful. He says, I will always be here for you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Is that not scripture? I'll always be here, but I'm going to be here. Do you understand? Today's Christianity says, no, God will morph towards you because that's grace. And that's mercy and that love. God's going to compromise his own integrity and move the rock that's him towards you because you're a stubborn mule. And that's what you want to hear. You want your ears tickled. And so, you know, you, man, I'll, I'll pay that, that pastor this 
just keep lying to me. I'll buy all your books. I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. In the past, like, yeah, give me up. <laughs> right? And it's a business. All I got to do is just, yeah, just misrepresent God a little bit, and I can make a business out of this. What was the number? Like 700, 750 billion? I think it was. Religion? I think that's what it was. 750, something like that. Huge, massive number. Right? That's all I got to do is just compromise God's integrity a little bit from the pulpit, and people will love me. Remember, the further you move away as a pastor from the truth, the more it becomes about you. Anyways. Let's keep going. But this, uh, verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. In other words, I will always be here. Okay? They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. They're there every day. He's there every day faithfully. He doesn't move. He's the rock. You move. You disorient. But the beautiful thing about God is you can get back to him. Through what? Confession. Right? If you have your back turned to him, you don't get him. You don't even see him. You have to repent. Repent literally means to turn around. Go back to him. He's always there. Verse 27, It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though the cause of grief, uh, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. So we can learn a lot from Jeremiah here as we reminisce with him. And, you know, see how his mind transitions from lament to salvation. That's that perspective. And confession's right in the middle of it because reconciliation from a point of disorientation is through confession. And what, what he's saying is God's always there to receive us upon our confession and reconcile us. So this lesson for us is that confession is what God is looking for in us. And as I mentioned earlier, we may still feel the sting of punishment that we've, for lack of a better term, earned, right, through sinning for some time. I mean, the punishment might need to remain. But with faith, we know that God, now listen, with faith, we know that God will equip us to handle this punishment. You won't be, you won't be crushed, you know, like, perplexed but not despairing, that type of thing. You won't be crushed beyond um, your ability to stand up, to withstand even the, even the results of your own poor decision-making. I mean, let's, I, I don't mean to be gross on a Sunday morning, but let's say um, you're a homosexual and you do happen to uh, acquire AIDS and you're physically suffering, you're probably going to die, maybe, who knows, whatever. Um, but you're, you've, you've believed in Jesus Christ. Well, the pain of, the physical pain of poor decision-making, of the sin of homosexuality, it doesn't go away. But you know what? You'll have peace on earth, even in that body that's aching and hurting and about to die. That's what he does when we return to him. 
He says, I can't lift that punishment out because, frankly, in his perfect way of doing things, we become proverbs for other people to look at and say, I don't want to do that. So it's a learning tool. We might become a learning tool. Don't do that because you'll end up like them. Right? And it's not about comparison. I hope you understand. It's a, it's a teaching tool. He says, I'm not, I can't pull that. I'm not going to pull that away. You're going to be stuck with those decisions. Right? But I'll give you peace. How about that? How about in my mercy, in my grace? I don't have to, but I will. If you confess that these sins that got you there were disorienting yourself from me, that they weren't from me, these actions, these thoughts, they weren't from me. You confess that, I'll forgive you, and you, I'll bring you back to me, and I will give you, I will equip you to be able to live a life with peace in it, even though you are still suffering from your poor decisions. Does that make sense? Yeah. And for some of you, I just described what's happening right now. Some of you are like, yep, I've made some really bad decisions, and I'm paying for it right now. And God says, you don't think I know that? You don't think I actually paid for that on the cross? I didn't send my son for nothing. Of course I did. You're going to have to live with some of the repercussions of these things. But what I can offer you is peace in the middle of that storm. I can offer you peace. You'll be able to sleep at night. Isn't that what counts? It's not, the pain might not be alleviated necessarily, but I'll at least give you peace. So for some of you, it might be happening. You know, maybe, maybe you're suffering for some poor decisions you've made in the past. I don't know. And nothing much is going to change uh, materially, right, right now, except God's gift to you in terms of being able to handle it through faith in him. Nothing material is going to change. I mean, the decisions made it involves maybe a bunch of other people. I don't know. Um, that's not really going to change necessarily, at least not now. Some of those things take a long time to heal up, right? But he'll give you peace in that time. A good analogy is, suppose someone places, and this is a, this is a terrible analogy. I'm so, like, dorky, but just go with it. Suppose someone places a car battery in each hand. Have you ever picked one up? They're pretty heavy. I mean, not for someone like me, but for you. <laughs> Suppose someone places a car battery in each hand and says, hold these until I return. Right? So you're standing there, and after a few minutes, your hands begin to really fatigue and ache, and the suffering sets in. God doesn't take the batteries away. Instead, he makes you stronger. Is that not a terrible analogy? He doesn't say, I'll take the batteries away. He might, but he's probably not. Not in the context of this conversation. I'm talking about sins that tend to perpetuate after we've made them. He doesn't take the batteries away. He says, I'll make you stronger. Hope that makes sense. We know this to be true. Why? Verse 32. Lamentations 3, you're there, right? Look at verse 32. But though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Yeah, I know it hurts. I know holding those batteries now is cutting into your knuckles. 
I know it hurts right now, but I'm going to make you stronger than that. I'm going to make you an overcomer. What did we read at the start of class? You're able to overcome because of your faith. Your victory is as a result of your faith. I'll just increase your faith. I'll make you stronger. I'll reassure you when you think you can't hold on anymore. When you think, you, oh, I feel like crying. Whew. When you think you can't cope with those things that you've done in your life, the ones that keep haunting you, when you can't do that anymore, I'll give you more faith. Right? And you'll, be go, you'll go from being a walking proverb of what not to do to a proverb of what to do for me. Think about the people that Jesus Christ hung around with. Right? Think about the woman at his feet. Think of the alabaster vial. Think of who that person was. Right? A cast off from society. And he says, wherever the gospel is preached, I want her name to be preached. Right? So it's not about... Uh, it's not about what you've done. It's about just orienting to God and being delivered. And God says, I will give you faith to overcome even that. And everybody else around you is going to say, oh, no, 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 no. I know who you are. Right? I know who you are. You're a sinner. I, know you. I was the one you hurt. I will never forgive you. You have people throwing that crap in your face until you're 40, 50, 60 years old, right? And God says, let them. They're going to cut into your knuckles, just like those batteries. They're going to cut into your knuckles. And I'm going to make you stronger than them. I'm going to make you stronger than that situation. And you'll survive because you're mine, and my kids don't fail. Amen? That's the point. That's the value of confession. Saying the same thing. That's right. Yeah, I won't. I'm, this isn't going to kill me, is it, Lord? No, it will not. I don't have to lay down and die? No, you don't. You stand up. Because I said to stand up. I say you can stand up. I sent my son so you could stand up. What do you think baptism is? A picture of you coming out of the grave. Leaving all that death behind. That's the victory. Don't let anybody or any errant thought ever bring you below that line. Anyways, verse 32. But though he has caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Like any good father... God's discipline is perfectly metered out so that the lesson is learned. Not prior, and not too long as to exacerbate his children. A la Colossians 3.21, right? He's perfect. He's going to give you that discipline that you need, but he also says, I promise you, I will give you enough faith for you to overcome anything. Even your own ridiculous decisions. That's the value of orienting to him. That kind of strength, that supernatural strength to overcome, is with him. It's not disoriented from him. You want peace in the storm? Well, peace is with him. 
And the hard lesson, I think, the hard lesson is that uh, he never moves towards you. That's a hard lesson for a lot of Christians to learn. They say, but, but if he really loved me, he'd do like my awful parents did. Excuse me, can you turn this volume down for a second? Right? Oh, Scott, stop. Stop trying to be like me. <laughs> He's like, I can do that too. Right? I don't even know where I was at. What was I talking about? Is the volume back up? All right. Any good father will discipline his children, and it's perfectly meted out, and not too long as to exacerbate his children. He will give you just what you need, and he'll give you enough to overcome whatever it is, including your own ridiculous decisions from the past. You will have peace because he promises you will have peace. Again, what's the point? God's just looking for confession. Just see things the way I see them. Come this way, towards me. I'm merciful. I already judged my own son for the guilt, for the wake of what you've done, for the pain of it, for the shame of it. I've already cast that on his shoulders. You can come to me boldly. Come to the, boldly to the throne of grace in time of need. That's the point. So he's just looking for confession. He takes care of the rest. Don't you worry about all that condemnation stuff that other people like to throw in your face. His preference, and therefore wisdom's counsel, is the pull model. He wants you to go this way. He doesn't, need it. He doesn't want his word to be behind you, going, right? He wants you to just want to go that way. Your desire is to be with him. So again, his preference is the pull model, as in we confess before we ever need to be disciplined even. That's the point. But here's the push model alternative up here on the board. The value of confession. A stubborn person who refuses good counsel is only harming themselves. A person who says, I'm not going to, I reject confession. I reject the idea of confession. Um, you're harming yourself. And then you have to ask yourself, why would anyone go about harming themselves? <laughs> Sounds stupid, right? Hey, if you stick yourself with a pencil in your arm, it hurts. Oh, let me do that then. Why would you do that? Why would you, like, hurt yourself? Seems literally stupid. One reason, arrogance. Arrogance. That's how ridiculous arrogance is. That's how ridiculous the human flesh is. So think about this. Ever known anyone, if not yourself? Here we go again, right? Everybody's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that one. Right? Oh, oh, definitely. What's that saying? It's like you point and there's like three pointing towards you. Right? You point one finger at someone else, three's pointing towards you. Right? Good counsel. But anyways, let's just play the game. Ever known anyone that even though God has literally and plainly showed them what happens when they sin, they still choose to sin. 
And not just that, they know full well they will suffer for it. That's the craziest thing. Reminds me of Romans 132. They know that person deserves to die, but they actually like, woo, house party. They didn't really do that. Just saying. They know they will suffer for it. What's the issue? Here's the hint. In the purest sense, up here on the board. Arrogance is unteachable. That's the problem. They just don't want to learn it. They don't, they refuse to learn. It might be the writing might be right on the wall. And arrogance goes, la 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 la. Nope. Nope. All right, let's go back to where we started this morning with David in Psalm 32, where his... Hey, 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 now. Whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't say yeah. I could have three other verses lined up, just leading you into it. We need to get back to Psalm 32. Is that better? Oh, antsy ones. Where his sin was eating him alive, but to his credit and his peace also... He confessed his sin to God. And because, as Jeremiah explained in Lamentations 3, God's faithfulness and loving kindness are renewed every morning, David was equipped to handle his woes. And he went on to write down his own wisdom as a teaching aid for the rest of us. Okay, Psalm 32. What? What? What's the problem? I had to reel you in. You were getting crazy on me. Stop wandering off. Psalm 32, verse 8. Oh, there it goes again. Jacked. <laughs> Psalm 32, 8. I, wisdom, will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle. Don't be the push model, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Oh, man, seriously? You ready? Here's the visual. Look at me. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Sphere of God. Sphere of death. Sphere of Satan. Sphere of sin. How about that? Sorrows of the wicked. Steadfast love. Verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Just as a side note, I hope you read this week's well, last week's blog up here on the board, God Teaches Us Trust. Was that this week? Oh, I'm sorry, then this week's. This week's blog. Believe it or not, all of that, and we're, yeah, we're an hour in. All of that was simply a reflection on why God had woken me up at 3 a.m. on Thursday morning to tell me to read Psalm 32. Let's take all that wisdom back to our primary course of study. Go to Proverbs 17, 5. Proverbs 17, verse 5. All of that back to our primary course of study. Because we need that connective tissue, right? We understand what he's been developing us. Verse 5. Whoever mocks the poor, insults his maker, 
he who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. This is punishment thing that launched us into a series of thoughts and doctrines. The Spirit took us back multiple times to this one verse or to another verse in the New Testament um, to emphasize the type of person who's at the polar opposite end of this advancing uh, believer or of an advancing believer. Namely, his desire to teach us about ourselves. He painted a clear picture through Holy Scripture of the advanced unbeliever. And here's that picture up here on the board, Ephesians 4.19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, and that's that aggressive or aggression, desire for advance, uh, advance or advantage, to practice, working, trading, doing business, every kind of impurity. So it's, ooh, it's aggressive work towards every kind of impurity. That's an advanced unbeliever. That's someone over here. Polar end. And that's drastically different than the opposite pole that we noted up here on the board with Psalm 51.17. The sacrifices of God, the thing God wants, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. That's the person. What's the key to this morning's message? Confession. Repentance. Just say what's right. I gave you a good conscience so you can discern what's right. You need to agree with me that whatever's right is right. That's what David wrote about here. That's the sacrifice that God's looking for. Right? A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. So just concentrate on this. I've got to teach you a little theology before we close. Uh, as the Spirit pulled all this together for us on Thursday, he made a simple statement about why this massive chasm exists between these polar ends. Like, what's the, like what, what got in there? Do you know what I'm getting at? Like, what got in there and made this huge chasm? Did something nestle its way in there? Did something jam its way in there and, and then, like a big explosion, two poles existed? Three-letter word, anybody? Sin. That's what happened. Sin came on the scene. Sin blew at the ends right apart. That's the culprit. Sin. Do you realize, I'm, think, I'm just thinking out loud, but this entire book exists because of that stupid thing. Because <laughs> that three-letter word. Like, there's just so much healing. <sighs> right? It's just, I hate it so bad. I hate sin so bad. I can't, I can, it's almost, I can like taste it, and it's so foul. I just hate it. Do you hate sin? I, honestly, I hate it. Some of you are like, I kind of like it when I do it. Right? And it's true. Everybody in why do you sin? Because you like it. Right? But at the end of the day, you hate it. Because you know what? After, you know, I was telling someone this past week, it's the Chinese food thing, right? 30 minutes later, you're like, I'm hungry. Again. What did Jesus say? Come to me, you shall never thirst, and you shall never hunger. You go to sin, it's Chinese food. 30 minutes later, I need to sin again. Again and again, right? And then you're like, you know, 950 pounds, and you're all a mess, and you're sweaty, and you don't take baths anymore, and 
Do you know what I'm getting at? It's a bad visual. It's a bad visual. That's sin. It's just it's like destructive. It's just bad. Anyways, that's the reason for the thing. That's, for the, that's the reason for the separation. So let me see if I can link some stuff together here. You ready? Regarding sin, confession is the remedy. Okay? We all sin. God says, my, my faithfulness is renewed every morning. You can always come back to me. I'm merciful. But don't play a game. Don't go like you did with your parents. I'm sorry. That's never getting you back. <laughs> Might take you further that way. Right? God's not dumb. It has to be from the heart. Right? It has to be genuine. So confession is the remedy to sin. Confession is what leads to repentance. Turning around. Oh, crap. I found myself here. I better turn my act around. I better turn myself. That's repentance. Repentance leads to forgiveness because he's always there. He says, I'll forgive you. Forgiveness leads to reconciliation, restoring happy relations with God. And reconciliation leads to peace. Ah, I'm right with God again. Do you see the string? Confession is the remedy to sin. Confession is what, or confession is what leads to repentance. Repentance leads to forgiveness. Forgiveness leads to reconciliation. Reconciliation leads to peace. Does that make sense? I hope. Does it also make sense that, that none of that would even be necessary in the absence of sin? I mean, what, what triggered it all? Let me say all of that in reverse to see if it makes sense. There is no peace without reconciliation. There is no reconciliation without forgiveness. There is no forgiveness without repentance. There is no repentance without confession. There is no need for confession without sin. Up here on the board. So sin is like the first domino in the line of dominoes. Right? Where if it was never tipped, none of the rest do either. None of these things would be necessary. There wouldn't be a reason to close that gap. It was sin all along. And that's what we deal with. And that's what the Bible really talks about. That's the, the essence of the gospel. You will never understand the need for a Savior if you don't understand that you're a sinner. So I need to do a quick, and I told you this is going to be a little longer than normal. I'll be quick, but remember there are people that hear these messages that are relatively new to the faith. So all of you arrogant people, settle down. Right? I guarantee if I took you in my office right now, I could teach you a thing or two about sanctification, even though you think you're a spiritual giant. So just, you know, relax, dear sizzle. Just. I need to do a quick refresher course on sanctification. For those of you who may be a little confused about sin, even, and its effects on us as believers, here's a crash course on sanctification up here on the board. Sanctification, to be made holy, sanctified, to be made holy, to be set apart for God's purposes. That's what sanctification is. To move from some worse place to a better place. Does that make sense? That's sanctification. I want to move you from point A to point B. That's sanctification. There's movement involved. Okay? To be made holy, to be set apart for God's purposes. That's what sanctification is. And we like to say, and most theologians agree, that if we're going to categorize sanctification in any way to make it more digestible we, there are three phases if you would okay uh, and they are time-based so up here on the board the three p's 
is what we might call them. We have positional sanctification, which means you're saved from the penalty of sin. That's the first P. That's positional. That happens when you're saved. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all of your sins, past, present, and future. You are positionally placed in union with Him, so your position in Him is good. It's sanctified. It's set apart. It's made holy. Okay? That's positional sanctification. Saved from the penalty of sin. Experiential sanctification. Saved from the power of sin. We're stuck with this body that still likes to sin. You all just admitted it. I like to sin. Right? You all just didn't. Why? Because this thing's ridiculous. It likes to sin. But God, we just read in the Holy Scripture that we can overcome that sin. We are overcomers. We have the power. He says, yeah, I get it. I see it. But I'll make you stronger than that. I'll make you able because I'm able. And you're my kid and I take care of my own. That's the power of sin. You understand? And then ultimate, which is looking forward into heaven, resurrection bodies, this whole thing is done. Ultimate sanctification. That means we're saved from the very presence of sin. God puts a lock on the whole thing. Sin's out. Perfect righteousness reigns again. Just like before the fall in the garden. Just like that. Where sin didn't come in and go... So those are three phases. Okay? That's the crash course. Now, why do I bring this up right now? Because if you're relatively new at this, you can get confused. I bet you some of you that, I saw some of you just jotting down notes that have been here for a long time, so it means something. You understand? It's good to learn this stuff over and over again because it gives you that perspective. But it's assumed that if you're brand new, you can get confused, especially between positional and experiential sanctification. Everybody understands, all right, in heaven, everything's perfect. Okay, I get that one. But what about positional experiential? Because the language, the context of the message itself might be focusing on positional. And I use certain language. And then it shifts to experiential, and I use other language. And they, the language almost seems opposed to one another. Like, wait a minute, didn't you just say... But over, didn't you just say this over... But wait a minute, what, you know, that whole thing. But the good news is the, the key difference is actually pretty simple to understand. Positional sanctification is accomplished instantaneously when a person is saved. You're placed in union with him. We call that baptism of the Holy Spirit. Boom! Your position is secured. Your position in Christ is done. Lock, stock, and barrel. Done. So that happens at salvation. It simply means that the penalty for sin has been covered for all time for the person whom God saves. Past, present, future. Your sin, the penalty of it, you deserve to go to hell, but Jesus Christ covered those sins for you. Okay? And you're saved from that penalty. That's positional sanctification. So that's why we have scripture like this up here on the board. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is writing about positional sanctification. You don't live in that condemnation positionally because you've been set free from it. Jesus Christ took the pain, the suffering, all of it on his own shoulders on the cross. So this means that a saved person shouldn't be living under the weight of their sin, 
paying a price for it that Jesus Christ himself already bore on the cross on their behalf. In other words, the penalty for sin has been covered by Jesus. Remember, that's the first P, the penalty. It's penalty, power, presence, okay? So the penalty for sin has been covered by Jesus. That's positional sanctification. So whenever I speak in plain terms like, your sin is paid for, or there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, or you are no longer held accountable for your sins, Whenever I speak like that, I'm speaking in terms of positional sanctification. Okay? However, if I say, you're going to be punished or disciplined for sinning, you immediately go, wait a minute, wait! Wait! You just said, you're going to be punished or disciplined for sinning. Or I say, you know, your misery is a result of your living in sin, etc., Know that in those instances, I'm speaking about what we would call experiential sanctification. Because we still have a flesh that influences us. And so we have to be saved from the power of sin, mostly in this thing, or influence from other people's this thing. Right? We have to be saved from that whole dynamic. And that's a real-time thing. And that's a daily battle. Okay? So it's this latter type of sanctification that we've just noted with David and Jeremiah in Psalm 32, 51 and Lamentations 3. Right? They lamented because they were sinners. They sinned. They were living in sin for a while. And it was haunting them. For us, that's different. Right? For us, it's different than saying, well, I'm positionally sanctified. I'm free from the penalty of sin. I can't go to hell anymore. But like those gentlemen, when I sin, I suffer for it. Why? Because I, as I taught this morning, God wants you to orient to him. He says, you still are living. If you follow the flesh, you go towards death. You go towards anxiety and pain and suffering, blah, blah, blah. And that's a real thing, is it not? If you go towards me, peace, love, contentment, happiness. So there's a real thing going on, and that's why it's an experience. That's why we use the word experiential sanctification, because it's the living experience that occurs after you're saved, after you're placed into union, new creature, born again, all that set in stone, no more penalty. You're not going to pay the penalty, because if you did, you'd have to go to hell. You're not going to hell. Awesome! But you still sin, even though the penalty is paid for the sin right now that you're living in, the experience of sinning is very real. And if you give in to the temptation and sin, you go towards that way. And if you uh, confess and repent from it, you go this way. That's the difference, right? It's not that difficult. So just always assume that once you have that nailed in your soul, if you hear me talking like that, one way or the other, you'll know that that's the context of the conversation. So... You still might get a little confused, but the reason we still suffer experientially is that there's a real battle being waged daily inside of us. And let's see what Paul said. Go to Romans 7.14. Romans 7.14. Let's just see this. Now, anybody want to anybody doubt that Paul was saved? Okay, so he's saved, right? So he was positionally sanctified. 
So here's a guy who understood. I mean, this guy spoke with Jesus. He was taught by Jesus himself. And here he is, positionally sanctified. There is no... Con- he's the same guy who wrote right after this passage, Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So here's a guy who understood that intrinsically. And yet, look at Romans 7.14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of fl- the flesh sold unto sin, for I do not understand my own actions. Anybody want to raise a hand? Hello. Right? Amen? Why you do that thing? Why are you so crazy? Why are you cray-cray? Why are you loco? Right? Why are you like that? I had to throw the loco thing in for our Mexican people. Right? <laughs> why you? Why? I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Anyone? Yep. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. So now it is no longer who I do it, but sin that dwells within me. Right? This is the flesh. This is the the sin nature that still carries on in our bodies. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right. In other words, the new creature wants to do it but not the ability to carry it out. The old thing keeps dragging me down. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do uh, not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin, but sin that dwells within me. So, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, But I see in my members, your body you see, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Does anybody say say this like daily? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's a rhetorical question because obviously it's God. But that's his thing. He's like, ah! Right? Anybody ever do that? Like, oh my God! Like, what is wrong with me? I keep doing the same thing. I don't want to do it. I don't even want to think like that. Lord, give me faith. Increase my faith. Because we know that faith is what delivers us. We learned that at the start of the message, right? So increase my faith so I can, ah, this thing is awful. That's what he's saying. He's like, ah, I just want to shake it off. But we don't get to shake it off until ultimate sanctification. Right now we're in experiential sanctification phase, which means we're stuck with this thing. And it's our bad roommate. And our roommate's a bad influence. We're stuck. We can't kick him out or her out. So we're stuck with it. And this is what it looks like. And I love how honest he is there because we can all get a good, almost a laugh out of it, right? In a sense. Again, that's just a little mini lesson up here on the board. Sanctification to be made holy to be set apart for God's purposes, and then the three phases, the three Ps, sanctification, positional sanctification, saved from the penalty of sin, experiential sanctification, saved from the power of sin, and then ultimate sanctification, saved from the very presence of sin. Okay, That's sanctification. So remember, we are talking about sanctification because we were talking about sin. Because the whole reason for sanctification is because sin came in and blew it all apart. And now we have to be delivered. And delivered is a synonym for salvation, by the way, in the Bible. Right? We have to be delivered from sin itself. 
And so confession, back to our primary course, confession implies that sin is there. That's the whole point. So sin is the reason that we need a Savior. Now, here's one of the great aha moments we've been given from this pulpit. You ready? I remember teaching this, and people were like, you know, I never thought of that, but it's so true. Once we're saved, we realize we still need a Savior. Amen? It's not this one-time event that false teachers say in Christianity. Come up here, say a little prayer. You're good. See you later. I'll see you in heaven. No. No. We need a Savior every single day. We can't draw upon our own resources to deliver ourselves from our, this thing, this wretched body. Who's going to deliver me from it? My Savior. That's who. My Savior. We need a Savior every single moment we are alive. And that's why in every circumstance we call on Him. Good, bad, or ugly. If it's good, we say, Hoorah, Lord! And He's like, Hoorah! If it's bad, you say, Oop! He goes, Oop! Right? And you say, It doesn't matter, right, Lord? You're with me. I'm not leaving you. I got your hand. I've had your hand since I saved you. I'm right here with you. Sometimes you ignore me. I get it. Try to shake me off. Right? But his hand's like super grip, like kung fu. Right? I'm here. I need you. I need you every moment of every day. Say that to yourself. I need him all the time. Every moment of every day. Don't divorce yourself from him. Don't say, I only need him when I need him. No. I need him all the time. I want to hold his hand all day long. I want every moment. I want to, when, I'm, when I'm checking somebody out at the baggage, whatever you do for a job, when I'm, when I'm digging a ditch, I want him right there with me. Hey, do you see how I made change, Lord? I didn't even need to use the computer on the machine. I was like, 52 cents. Boom. Right? You guys are laughing, but that's the relationship he wants to have with you. You see how I took that little rock and flipped it over my shoulder and landed right in the, in the barrel. I'm like, gifted. Did you see that, Lord? And he's like, yes. Right? And you have fun with him. You see how I tied my shoe without even looking? This is a first. I'm 50. Unless you're like me, you wear shoes without any laces. Make it easy with a little shoehorn. See how I put the shoehorn in there, Lord? You're laughing, but that's how he's your best friend. You want him in every circumstance. Every single one. That's the point. Because we need a Savior every day. Amen? All right. In other words, salvation or deliverance from sin is something we need to confess for as long as we're alive on this earth. If we do as some suppose, sadly, that they can you know, reject the idea of confessing sins to God, then we suffer for it. And you know, as we've learned, if we don't suffer, then we aren't God's child. We saw that in Scripture a couple of messages back. If you don't suffer, if you're not disciplined, you're not his. So the spirits use Proverbs 17.5 to, to drive this point home up here on the board. A believer's good conscience will not allow them to rejoice in sin. 
Sin is the great issue that keeps us from being perfectly sanctified experientially. Who will free me from this sin nature? This, this. So we fight the good fight, the way Paul alluded to in Romans 7. He never said he gave up. He just was disgusted. He was just beat up. So we just fight the good fight. We finish the course. Keep the faith. Again, I'll give you the four, the four verses that I gave you in closing on Thursday right out of Jesus' own mouth. Here's his encouragement up here on the board. Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Humility is the key. Matthew 7, 7, up here on the board. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Humility to the word of God is paramount. Up here on the board, John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Did we not just talk a little bit about sanctification? How are you sanctified? The word. It's why you're doing what you're doing. Experientially sanctified. The word is front and center. Jesus said it himself. This humility results in freedom. Finally, John 8.32 up here on the board. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of studying your word here this morning. Thank you for bringing us all together as family so that we can do this thing. We just ask your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to the privacy of our own souls, Father, back to our homes. And your will be done out to those who need it so desperately. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.